You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQ. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. The entire growth of kind of what we'll call modern computing uh, through emerging tech and everything else isn't done via RFP. If you watch the growth of Salesforce from 1999 onwards, I look at all the channel companies. There's 222 of them that are in now in the decade of the ecosystem growing by triple digits. These are not companies that are waiting around for million-dollar RFPs from governments. Their entire business and their entire valuations are based on pilots. And there's this magical, I call it the $30,000 pilot. That's how they won every single deal. They're not looking to win that multi-million dollar Jedi product uh, project. They're looking to get into a director level person and win that $30,000 step in the door. And their whole business model is based on land and expand. And so that's kind of anti-government procurement who wants to issue the larger, more complex, well-thought-out request for information, request for proposal, that whole process. And it's less um, inclined to let empowered, lower-level people go out and be a little bit rogue, a little bit shadow, and do a little bit of A-B testing. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. This episode is going to focus on the channel partnerships and ecosystems. And the good news is the channel is growing and full of opportunities. The challenge is that major changes are coming that will disrupt the channel and manage service providers' business model. Recent research shows the world economy is being worth about $86 trillion. Business and government IT spending makes up about 5% of that, or $3.5 trillion, spent on IT and telco. Currently, 64% of the tech industry spending flowed through the channel or indirect sales. But by the end of the decade, only 33% of money will flow that way, which is a massive disruption. The IT spending pie is destined to get a whole lot bigger, doubling in size to $7 trillion by the end of the decade. But the size of the channel slice will stay stagnant around $2.2 trillion, as marketplaces and direct will grow much quicker than right now. So what are some of the trends that will account for this massive change? And where should you be looking instead? Well, my guest today is going to help us with that. Jay McBain is currently the chief analyst at Canalis, focused on channels, partnerships, and ecosystems. He has over 25 years in the space, and prior to joining Canalis, he held the same role for Forrester. He's an accomplished keynote speaker, author, and innovator in the IT industry. He's been named to the top 40 under 40 list by the Business Review, a top eight influencer by Channel Partners, and a top eight thought leader by Channel Marketing Journal. And I couldn't think of anyone better to have on the show to cover this topic. So let's jump in. Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Excited. want to just start out with a recent quote you gave stating, the next decade of the channel ecosystem will be pivotal as the technology industry undergoes a major transformation. Help us understand this. What transformation do you see happening over the next 10 years? Yeah, it's interesting. There's not a single transformation. It's literally 10 different things happening at once. 
But as they all kind of pull together, uh, the last 40 years of our industry uh, are going through a, a pretty significant pivot. And as we look forward for the next decade, if, if you're to think about a book being written 10 years from now, you know, they'll, they'll look back at this point on a number of different things. So, you know, we can talk about those today, like subscription and consumption models. And that's pretty straightforward when you think about businesses and, and how they are transforming themselves. But when you think into the public sector and governments and some of the legacy of, of how they procure and provision and things like that, they're, they're pretty big changes. The, this move into marketplaces where one third the US economy now runs in marketplaces and what that means and the investments going into those spaces. You know, thinking about buying behavior. And we know on the um, on the business side of things, enterprise side of things, a lot of consumer level things like how you buy a car is now becoming how you buy hardware and software and services and other types of things. And then taking the public sector and governments and education and healthcare and everything else and overlaying into some of this new consumer behavior as it links to marketplaces and as it just links to psychology and behavior and the new customer journey and everything else becomes pretty interesting. But I could go on and on and on, but there's all kinds of changes that are yes. having a ripple effect. Let, let's, st let's stick with marketplace for a second. You've predicted that kind of by the end of the decade, there's going to be 20 leading marketplaces that are going to take 80% of marketplace opportunities. That's a massive chunk. Tell me why you see this change happening and what can governments do right now to be prepared to take advantage of this shift? Because we all, we all know governments don't move quickly. So if it's a decade-long change, they probably need to start now to get ready for what's coming, right? Yeah. So at Canales, uh, my research firm, uh, we looked at about over $3 billion last year that just went through you know, public cloud marketplaces. Think Microsoft and AWS and Google and Salesforce, et cetera. Uh, looking ahead a couple of years, by 2025, that's going to be $25 billion. You know, talk about something growing by triple digits. And then by the end of the decade, uh, you know, we're starting to look at you know, almost a trillion dollars of this industry you know, starting to move in more digital ways. And so many governments, by the way, you know, for a long time have had e-commerce and electronic payments and, and everything else. What's different here is that, you know, how you think about technology in layers, the average, for example, SaaS software as a service um, type of deal has seven layers to it. So you don't just buy Salesforce or ServiceNow or Workday or Marketo or NetSuite you think about the six other ISVs that are part of that and how you provision and procure that, especially when the vendor themselves are investing billions of dollars into their own marketplaces. They're building out all the elements, things like enterprise credits, for example. So you know, companies envision selling to, let's say, the Bank of America and selling them $10 million of credits where they can roll up a lot of their purchases and take advantage of extra discounts. And then obviously have the advantage of having everything in one place, you know, kind of stamping out rogue or shadow IT and, and rolling up discounts that they wouldn't have got unless they did, you know, bring that all into kind of a central place. So the governance, the predictability, the compliance, all these things that governments are looking for, you know, are, are starting to be delivered by marketplaces at scale. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Do you think those seven layers of the cloud deal on average 
Do you think that comes from a shift around value-based because they're really looking at what the outcomes are and it just so happens that it's a pull through on other technologies that they're, as they're looking to accomplish their mission? Is that why you think it, it, it's become so complex in that way? Uh, well, there's, I think there's a number of things at play is, you know, the last time I counted, there's about 35 million different elements, depending, you know, on the buyer themselves, uh, the industry that it's going into, the geography that it's going into, kind of the sector segment of the market. Today, there's not just hardware, software, and services, there's 250 categories. So again, you don't just buy security, there's seven layers of security and 17 layers below that. Uh, and then there's uh, the delivery model. You know, whether it is true software as a service, it's delivered as a managed service, it's delivered as an integration service. There's about 16 different types of those. So that's where there's just so many permutations today. The way I like to think about it is, you know, when you acquire, let's say a platform, you know, for a particular function, a business function, let's say, even within government, you start to think about paving the last mile. And when you think about channels and partnerships, that's what they've always done from, you know, decades ago is paving the last mile. And if I happen to be running uh, a municipal government up in Rochester, New York, you know, I can buy one of these global massive platforms, but there's literally entrepreneurs down the street that are building out applications for me in my very specific geography for my very specific use case. So in the past, I might've had to hire big integration SI type of firms to go build me custom software. But today there's 175,000 software companies, SaaS companies run by entrepreneurs who I think there's going to be a million software companies by the end of the decade, which are paving these you know, very interesting last miles of where I don't have to customize anymore. I can buy into those companies that are thinking about my use case, my value model, my and co-innovating almost with me as a as a public sector entity, and and thinking about you know our customers, which happens to be uh, the citizens of of my city, my state, my province, my country, whatever it is, and um, you know that level of co-innovation with the public sector, the levels of value creation, and just the levels of network effects that are going on now are completely different than what we would have even been talking about a couple of years ago. Do you think that model from a federal perspective works in in a shared services environment where you where you c can give that last mile innovation within an agency but if you're looking to drive that shared service into another agency with a separate mission do you think that that still will hold true in that partner system? Well I think it will and again it's not just software I don't I don't want to just have a software conversation here there's 800,000 emerging tech companies so if I look at Internet of Things or AI automation, blockchain, quantum computing, AR, VR, MR, kind of the new metaverse, you know, self-driving cars, drones, in these public sector, you know, shared services, these public sector innovation areas, whether it's smart cities or, or whichever you know area you want to talk about, there's all kinds of different um, entrepreneurs playing now in this sandbox. And what's interesting for many is is there a point where governments become businesses themselves? And so if I you know, co-innovate and I build a really interesting you know, seven-layer um, technology solution, is there a point where the public sector can go and almost act as a new SaaS company or a new Internet of Things company or, or something else 
and participate in the market for, like you said, uh, solutions that may be applicable, not just in Rochester, but over in Syracuse and Buffalo and Albany. And, oh, guess what? It also plays in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And then all of a sudden, governments of our size trying to solve this you know, very particular problem, this could be a global thing where part of the ownership of that uh, patent or the part of the ownership of the actual end use case is partially public sector. And it kind of opens up a whole can of worms there, but uh, this is the type of innovation garages that we're seeing today. The use case that comes to mind right off, right off the top of my head is uh, OPM in the US where they were building out and also reselling to, to other government agencies a uh, onboarding and, and hiring model based on use cases because government is so complex around that. So um, I think it's ab- absolutely a possibility. Um, when we take a look at the kind of the proliferation of marketplaces over the next decade, um, it kind of leads me into another thought where you've talked about the importance of orchestration and the growth that could bring to companies. Do you think the expansion of these marketplaces is going to be directly related to the importance of that orchestration because there are so many players and the ability to integrate and deploy? Yeah, absolutely. So orchestration at a high level, um, an ecosystem, by the way, doesn't come from business. It obviously comes from uh, you know natural environments and things and lots of moving parts. And the thing about an ecosystem is there is no center of gravity. Um, it's not celestial where everything rotates around a sun, whether that be a large government or a, you know, a large firm like a Microsoft or an AWS or a Salesforce or something. So it, in that world that it's not linear, ecosystem orchestration, which again you know, is millions of different um, moving parts, and to kind of orchestrate that into some end value uh, is critically important. And there's a lot of people competing for that orchestration you know, type of role. Uh, but if you just think back to the, some of the numbers we were just sharing, and every company in every industry is becoming a tech company. So if I'm watching Ford as a car company, you know, last couple of weeks rolling out now their major product as an electronic product, the Ford F-150 Lightning, the, the CEO is looking like a tech leader out in the press talking about ecosystems of valuation and a computer on wheels and what this is going to look like. And, you know, for the auto industry, there's a lot of public sector elements to that in terms of how they roll this out, um, you know, globally and things like that. But if you go back to that very specific example with, um, with Ford, you know, now they're thinking very differently into how to orchestrate that value because in five years after the F-150 hits the street, it's going to be self-driving, maybe 10 years, depending on the place. But after self-driving, the next thing that happens to that industry is transportation as a service. So our grandchildren may never own a car because they'll be subscribed to getting from point A to point B. And so in that world, you know what differentiates Ford or Tesla or whoever else at that point from Microsoft or Apple or, or somebody else, it's absolutely a technology subscription. And this is the kind of orchestration we're talking about because there are millions of moving parts up and down the line. 
is that I mean, so one of the predictions that you had for for 2022 was talking about the ecosystem orchestrator becoming the new trusted advisor. Is it because of the the impact that they're going to have? That's why they're going to have to become that trusted advisor moving forward. Yeah, and I don't think there's ever a single trusted advisor anymore. Um, for 40 years, we always talked about this idea of a single throat to choke or that single trusted advisor. Again, in an ecosystem, there's too many mil- uh, moving parts, you know, in the millions, and when you multiply them together, um, it, it's just beyond comprehension of the amount of things going on. So. It's not like in this case, a tech company vendor or a car company or a pharmaceutical company or a bank or insurance company, you know, whether it's highly regulated by government or not, you know, there's no single trusted advisor, but again, there's layers of it. And when I mentioned the competition for orchestration, there's obviously a large distribution and wholesale network in every industry. That thinks, you know, for for decades they put together the pieces and parts, the hardware, the logistics, the capital and credit facilities and things. So they think that they are maybe the heir apparent with transformation on their own to becoming much more valuable to the end customer. There is obviously um, other layers within that as well. I mean, the big tech companies that are now, you know, the top ones that are in the trillions of dollars of valuation, think of themselves including their marketplaces, their APIs, their SDKs, you know, being the foundation or the platform that carries to that last mile, you know, they see themselves as natural orchestrators. But the world runs, even you look across business, it runs, small business runs in many cases through that local chamber of commerce. That's where that Ford dealer, by the way, it's what they read. It's where they go. It's where they have influence. It's where they follow people. That that local influence, a lot of times, is really connected to public sector, and how the orchestration then works. Whether you know it's big initiatives, some of the ones you mentioned, or you know smart cities or whatever it is, or smart countries, um, right down to the grassroots, maybe more public sector led. Uh, from an orchestration perspective than we've given it credit for. So as we're looking at the marketplaces and the, the orchestration that's taking place, um, my my brain is kind of shifting over to some of the marketplaces that I know are fairly prominent. You talked, you talked about Salesforce, obviously uh, Google Cloud, and then AWS. And I've looked at these public cloud providers as almost becoming new age uh, global systems integrators because they have so many ISVs that are partnered with them. They have the ability to deploy in the cloud in, in a secure way um, and support, uh, whether it's a government, kind of bring in, bring all of these together to, to deploy a solution. You talked about those layers of a cloud deal to be able to deploy a solution that's value-based. Do you see these, these public cloud vendors now becoming uh, a new age GSI at, at present? I actually don't. Uh, I think it's the opposite of that. The GSIs, you know, if you look at Accenture, for example, they have 700,000 employees. So by employee size, they're the biggest tech company in the world. And through all the G20, the big GSI top 20, the Deloitte's, the PWC's, the Capgemini's, all the way down the list, they have hired each like 100,000 plus people during the pandemic. So it is arms and legs. When you have that seven layer technology stack that you procure and provision through 
a large scale marketplace, there is at least today about $6 for every dollar you buy of services connected. And it's something, another one of my predictions, I call this multiplier. The big platforms are getting very smart about communicating this type of language. If you listen to the CEO of Microsoft last year, um, Sacha, he went into a you know Channel Magazine and talked about unlocking trillions of dollars for the ecosystem. You look at Google Cloud and they're at five dollars and eighty cents. Salesforce was actually the first to do it at six. Now they're at six dollars and nineteen cents. When they first did it, like five years ago, it was like four dollars and something. So these multipliers are growing, and you've got to ask the human capital question of who delivers the literally the arms and legs of who delivers that six-time multiplier for every dollar that comes out of the marketplace. One thing that you're going to see marketplaces do, and this is where they're investing billions of dollars each, is to be able to orchestrate that total, let's say, $7 deal where I can actually buy up. And it's not just Accenture. It, you know, I need to buy perhaps some managed services, managed security services. I need to obviously buy the ISVs on top of the deal. But if my solution involves, let's say, digital agencies, accountants, legal firms, if it involves some uh, consultant services, I mean, there's 16 different kinds of services that go into that multiplier. System integration is just an implementation. It's just one of those layers. And the competition for you know, who earns that multiplier, which is a, you know, really a human-led, um, services-led type of um, multiplier, and then who collects the money and kind of who owns that uh, contract with the up and, and, and down capabilities um, is going to be a really interesting you know, kind of conversation as we go through the next few years. So as we're talking about cloud and you touched on the subscription and consumption model kind of taking over, there's obviously a lot of, uh, a lot of companies out there right now that haven't made that transition or are in the middle of making that transition. What have been some of the biggest challenges that you've seen as companies have made that shift from uh, on-prem licensed software into, into a cloud posture? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a ton of changes happening everywhere from obviously the customer side of things uh, right up through the vendor themselves. Uh, so just to give some examples in the tech industry, uh, if you look at the entire client server era, which, you know, many governments, it's, it's the majority of their purchasing is still in the, you know, the kind of the data center through the edge and obviously growing cloud investments and things like that. But if you go back to that era, you've got companies like Dell and Cisco and HP and Lenovo and IBM and others who have now declared a hundred percent of their business moving to subscription consumption or, you know, product-led growth or usage-based or value-based models. So there's all kinds of business models in there, but Wall Street is driving a change for many of these companies who haven't really grown revenue in the last decade to start getting better value out of each of the dollars they do sell. Because, you know, as you see with the trillion dollar firms, as you see with the SaaS firms, they might get $10 of valuation for every dollar they sell, where some of the more traditional companies are getting a dollar of value for every dollar they sell on the stock market. So this push into, you know, I'll use the um, example of HPE GreenLake, where a government would have been spending, let's say, a million dollars for a server and doing all the 
things they do to go through the procurement cycle and try to squeeze every last nickel out of the channel and everything else and you know end up procuring that million dollar server HPE is coming back and saying well that's now $9000 a month forever and I, I don't know too many governments around the world at any level who are prepared to sign a contract for $9000 a month forever it's not something that they even own the capability or the um or the actual approval to go do you're signing up your your citizens who are paying taxes to something that seems like a, a never-ending um journey and uh, that's very difficult to do but hpe greenlake last year grew at 136 percent, and that's growth that far outpaces the big hyperscalers in cloud who happen to be growing at 50 percent quarter in quarter out year on year all three of them um, on much bigger baselines. But the point of the matter is these changing models and the companies that are driving this 100% commitment to it make up the majority of spend in the public sector today. So how all this shakes out and, and their acceptance of signing on to you know, what appears to be $9,000 a month forever is going to be very interesting, um, especially in this industry in the next few years. Do you think it's the companies that have to change their expectations, or do you think it's governments that need to adapt to what this new model is going to look like? Well, this will be the the fun thing to watch, um, is the customer, in whether that's you know enterprise, small business, or you know government, education, medical, wherever you are as a customer, are moving slower than these companies would would or the investors would like them to move. Uh, partners as well. You know, there's millions of partners now in the tech space as everybody's coming in are also slower to move because their customers are slow to move. So what these vendors want and obviously what's capable of of selling are, are going to be divergent for, for probably most of this decade. Uh, the fact of the matter is though that um, the more public sector that is going cloud, whether infrastructure-wise, software-wise, up and down, or even into emerge, emerging technology is going to be in a subscription model. And so what today is a low percentage of spend you know, will grow and grow pretty significantly each year. So they're each going to have to look at these models and then have to bring in the more expensive hardware and um, data center type of infrastructure, infrastructure at the edge, you know, from PCs to mobile to, to all the pieces at the edge, they're going to have to start rethinking everything. And as companies are producing these monthly fees, uh, they're going to have to get much better at what those contracts are, what the breakage is, what the risk, the compliance, the governance of all this spend is. Because in the end, you have to serve your customer, which happens to be the taxpayer <laughs> citizen. Um, you know, you have to represent them well that they're not signing a bad contract or they're, you know, you understand what getting out of, you know, whatever you sign up for, um, the long-term costs and, and risks to doing that. So with all these changes happening, I can completely understand now why you have emphasized the fact that tech buying is changing. And with that, so are the, the demographics of the people that you're, you're, you're selling to, um, and you need to adapt, right? It comes a change in psychology, behavior, and journey. Tell me a bit about 
how we need to adapt to all of this? Well, I think, um, you know, it's, it's always, uh, you know, I always like to think customer first. I mean, there's a hundred different ways you could start this mental journey. Um, but if I think through the customer, um, whether that customer ends up being a, you know, local state government or, or, you know, a hospital, for example, um, I have to think almost in three different phases. So if I'm a vendor trying to sell, if I'm a partner trying to represent and, and, and be part of that multiplier, I have to think about now, we know much more about the journey than we did even a few years ago. We know that in this kind of consumer behavior, it almost looks like when you're buying a server, when you're buying a firewall, when you're buying software, it almost looks today like buying a car. And if you know, I remind people the last time they bought a car, there's about 28 moments on average that you went through. You know, you go and uh, watch some YouTube videos, you go and look at um, social media, you talk to your neighbors, you talk to your friends, you know, we can kind of measure how you took 62 car companies and 365 brands of cars and narrowed it down to something that you could actually go and configure and price and quote, download the invoice price at the dealer, get the back end rebate. So you are so smart after those 28 moments, you are smarter than the salesperson at the dealership ever would be. And you probably knew within $100 what you're walking out of the dealership with as a deal. So that smartness of that, that empowering of the customer is happening today in governments. It's happening everywhere. So by the time they reach vendor selection and they've gone through these 28 moments and they've read the eBooks, they've listened to podcasts like this one, they've gone and gone to an event local and maybe in Las Vegas, they've, they've done all the things they need to do to be really, really smart. Now, as a vendor, I got to think about how many of those 28 moments am I in? And if you ask the question, like, why is Microsoft outgrowing AWS for like the last nine quarters? It's because they invest in this enterprise channel, enterprise partners that mention or endorse Microsoft in more of those 28 moments than AWS is getting endorsed. So technology aside, you know, Microsoft seems to be winning those early moments. And it's the same way, you know, BMW or Mercedes would try to win those early moments with you. And so when you're at that point of selection, vendor selection into procurement, now, whether the money flows indirectly through a partner, it flows into a marketplace, it flows kind of more traditionally direct, whichever way the money flows isn't as important as it was yesterday because that money is now flowing in a subscription. So it's only really the first 30 days with the customer. And so now all the fun starts, which is phase three, which is for every 30 days, I need to make sure that my product is being adopted. If I don't adopt it, if I sign up for Netflix and never watch it, you know, I'm gonna, there's not going to be too many months I look at my credit card and don't cancel it. And the same thing here. If I buy that $9,000 server and we never up fire it up and install it and everything else, how many months am I going to look at that $9,000 before canceling that service? So adoption, getting it further integrated and sticky. In, in the consumer world, it's you know, habit forming. You know, how many nights do you go home and turn on Netflix during the pandemic? Um, but it's also upsell, cross-sell, and enrichment. In a subscription business, for example, as a vendor, you are not looked at anymore for revenue or profit or customer sat, the things you've been measured on for 100 years. You're measured by subscribers. You're measured by new subscribers this period, this quarter, and you're measured by churn rate, retention rate. 
So guess what? Two weeks ago, Netflix kind of didn't come up with very good quarterly numbers against those three and dropped 60% overnight the value of their company. So you might be valued at 10x or whatever the number is. Netflix was much higher. But on those metrics, no one knows what Netflix's revenue is because we don't look at that number. You know, Nobody really looks at the profit number because I don't think there is much. The fact of the matter, we're just obsessed over this retention rate. And some of these companies, by the way, that are going this direction, their investors want to see 108% retention. So in other words, you're losing customers, but I want to make sure your current customers, you're enriching to the point where your retention rate is 108. It's north of 100%. And so those are three distinct phases. Partnerships play a huge role in all those phases. And how you implement all of that in public sector, I think is up for debate. I think it's up for um, a question right now in terms of who the most successful vendors are going to be in working with the public sector and working with partnerships in the public sector to make all three of those things work. Do you think the need for becoming so sticky is one of the reasons why marketplaces are going to grow the way they are? Because to me, when I think of becoming more sticky within an environment, the number of integrations, the amount that your platform is interoperable and can perform some of the the mission-oriented experiences or automations, what have you, that are related to to the problems that you're trying to solve is the best way to get it sticky. And obviously, marketplace is not only a way to be agile to procure, but also to be able to bring those in and fold them into the environment. Do you think that's one of the drivers there? Yeah. So I'm going to answer that two ways. One is that um, in digital subscriptions, let's go back to Netflix. You don't buy Netflix from your cable guy in the white van. You buy it on a digital subscription. You set it and forget it. So there's a digital element to procurement um, in this kind of modern world, this modern business model. Uh, the second part of the question, though, is I'm going to kind of call it the SAP effect. You know, SAP, which obviously uh, built out ERP systems across governments and businesses, you know, for you know decades now, um, are probably the stickiest piece of software possible. And and the reason, I mean, there's many reasons, but the main reason is that it's literally open heart surgery to replace your ERP system. So whether you love SAP and there's you know millions of people who love SAP, whether you hate SAP, it doesn't matter. It's literally there and it's almost impossible to uninstall. The average person is sp- spending like two and a half to three years now in, a, you know, in their current job before moving companies or moving into another job. Nobody within that two years wants to go into an ERP replacement cycle. So if you're a company like HubSpot or ServiceNow or Workday or Marketo, Salesforce, if, if you're one of these newer SaaS companies, how would you approach the SAP effect? Which is to say you're so deeply integrated, so implemented in the very core DNA of your customer or, or um, uh, public sector kind of client that you have, that whether they like you or hate you, you're not getting removed. I'm going to say on the sales side, maybe CRM, Salesforce, is approaching that, where it's just almost impossible after you've built your entire sales process around that CRM, Salesforce, maybe since 1999, there's no head of sales that you're going to hire, no CRO that's going to come in and think, hey, I'm going to just pop in my new CRM. You've got to work with what's there. Like no chief financial officer is going to come in and say, hey, let's 
you know, switch out SAP for Oracle as an ERP. It's just not going to happen. And, and that's the degree of stickiness, whether I'm in software, whether I'm in hardware, or whether I'm in services that I want to achieve. So then how do organizations, in, in your opinion, because I think it, a lot of people are going to have opinions on this, how, how do organizations go about working in those type of environments, navigating those type of environments? If you're a government, if you're trying to have a conversation with a government agency who has deployed uh, an ERP system to that degree, how are you successful in that environment? As a vendor, you're really looking at those three things. One is adoption. You know, as ServiceNow and as I'm thinking about the customer success function in the public sector, which for many um, governments around the world and for many citizens who would vote on this has, you know, would say it's severely lacking. You know, if some of these uh, public sector entities kind of acted more like uh, Zappos in terms of shoes or something like, you know, perhaps the recognition of the services they deliver would be higher. So if you d invest deeper into service now to improve your customer success function, the, what they're measuring is really the adoption rate. I want to make sure that every transaction, whether it goes through the phone or in person or a chat bot or through social media, through the 30 different vehicles that it could possibly go through, I want to make sure it's captured. I want to make sure that there's AI and automation there. I want to make sure that we're going to the fullest adoption of the technology. And for ServiceNow, that would be the first step towards, you know, full-on retention, full-on stickiness. You know, the next layer is integrations. So when I talked about that $6 being kicked out for every dollar of ServiceNow, for example, you know, that $6, you want to make sure that there's integrators in there and managed service providers, and all kinds of people that are building it into the very framework, the very DNA of that department. And, you know, making sure that really the business logic uh, around what they're delivering the, you look in the um, workflows, you look in the processes, all of those levels of automation, if they become built inside that platform and, you know, basically, you know, built inside to the point where you can't extract processes and workflows to another platform, that's the stickiness factor number two. And then number three is just that ongoing upsell and cross-sell. Each of these companies are obviously making acquisitions. They're adding technology each and every release. And to get that department to buy more and invest more and lean in more, especially at adjacent layers, that becomes, um, you know, that becomes a trick. So if I invest in, for example, unif uh, UCAS, Unified Communications, but I do that in a way connected to ServiceNow, um, that makes them even more sticky. So now I'm not just replacing the customer success software. Now I'm replacing my phone system. Now I'm replacing my video system, my chat bots. Like I, I can't go and rip out. It becomes open heart surgery again. Uh, you know, it's just so embedded in what we do and the way we move that it becomes untouchable, too big to fail. When, especially in government, we know they don't procure that way either. So it's it's one one issue by one issue, and it becomes too challenging and daunting for them to, like you said, to to rip all of it out across procurements and and do that. So it makes total sense. Yep. Before before I, I give you a chance to give some final thoughts, because we've covered a lot here. Um, one last question I have for you is: you've touched on a lot of things that show that this environment is obviously changing. It's being disrupted um, to some degree. How should governments adapt to these changes, especially from a procurement perspective? Yeah. So there's one big change that we haven't talked about is 
the entire growth of public cloud, the entire growth of the SaaS industry, the entire growth of kind of what we'll call modern computing uh, through emerging tech and everything else isn't done via RFP. If you watch the growth of Salesforce from 1999 onwards, if you watch the growth of the Marketos and HubSpots and, and Eloquas of the world during the decade of marketing, I look at all the channel companies. There's 222 of them that are in now in the decade of the ecosystem growing by triple digits. These are not companies that are waiting around for million-dollar RFPs from governments. Their entire business and their entire valuations are based on pilots. And there's this magical, I call it the $30,000 pilot. And once Salesforce, and I remember being at IBM at the time, I worked there 17 years. I was one of the early adopters at IBM that brought in Salesforce for my department. And it was completely rogue shadow IT. Nobody knew because the company had just spent a billion with a B on Siebel. And Siebel was so hard to use and none of my people would adopt it that they did adopt Salesforce. And then it, I hired somebody to go translate all that Salesforce activity into Siebel at the end of the week to get prepared for my uh, review with my boss. So it appeared that we were playing the role. And then neighboring departments did the same thing. So Salesforce won hundreds of deals at 30 grand, call them pilots, to the point where there was so much Salesforce activity that the company ended up dumping Siebel and went to Salesforce. That's how they won every single deal. They're not looking to win that multi-million dollar Jedi product uh, project. They're looking to get into a director level person and win that $30,000 step in the door. And their whole business model is based on land and expand. And so that's kind of anti-government procurement who wants to issue the larger, more complex, well-thought-out um, model, request for information, request for proposal, that whole process. And it's less um, inclined to let empowered, low, lower-level people go out and be a little bit rogue, a little bit shadow, and do a little bit of A-B testing. Hey, this worked great. This one didn't work. Let's shut it down. You know, this is how businesses are reacting now is they're letting 65%, for example, of SaaS is bought through the lines of business. It's not bought through procurement. It's not bought through IT. And in that case, is it's being bought by the business leaders that are, should be leading the technology. They're spending 51% of their time now on technology instead of the line of business that they're supposed to be running. So that's the part that's going to shake out here this decade in public sector. If they're open to that $30,000 pilot and open to this fact that it may never result in a million dollar or multi-million dollar or multi-billion dollar type of engagement, it's just going to roll up 30, 60, 90, 120. All of a sudden you're paying a million, all of a sudden you're paying 10 million, but that's the natural flow of technology today. Makes complete sense. Jay, we've covered a lot. I appreciate your time today. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the audience? You know, if I were to choose a, a decade to live in and, and to work in, in this environment, this would be the one because, you know, it, it, almost every morning we wake up, you know, thinking about a damage report and, um, you know, all the different movements that are happening. It just makes this um, kind of a fun thing to watch and obviously a huge opportunity for all of us as well. When things change, that's when the biggest opportunities arise. And you know, it's harder to climb into something that's been established for 40 years. It's easier to get in at the ground floor, at the grassroots of something new. 
And when I talk about entrepreneurs and hundreds of thousands of software companies and almost a million emerging tech companies, public sector clients that are now open to innovation, co-innovation and value creation, they're looking for the network effects. This is just fun environment to be in no matter what you do for a living. And you know the opportunities are boundless. Great. Hey, Jay, thanks again for the time. Really appreciate it. Uh, Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast or wherever you access yours. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.